Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. I want to begin with um, sharing with you an, a, a lengthy quotation. And some of the things I'll be covering tonight, I've been with you so many years that I'm sure that some of the things that we'll be covering tonight we've talked about before. But we have a lot of new friends at the Institute, and we're all going to come back together and bring, our, bring ourselves to get on the same, on the same uh, place. The quotation is from a text called Tending God's Garden. Uh, and I'll just read it to you. I would suggest you take notes this evening. We'll be covering a lot of material. If you've got a pen and paper, you've got your Bible, well, guess what? We're going to get down and dirty tonight. We're going to scratch our knees and, and so forth and uh, probably fall a few times. You'll probably get lost a few times. I'll probably get lost a few times. But together, we'll make it through the program this evening. Here's what the text says. In the beginning, God planted a garden of paradise. The divine gardener arranged his paradise in good order. With his own hands, he planted a hedgerow around it. And without tilling its virgin earth or digging furrows, he planted vineyards, fruit trees, the green herbs, and all kinds of vegetation to delight the eye. He channeled a river into his garden that it might always have living water and provided that the garden would always have enough sun and fair weather. Then in the middle of the garden, he planted the tree of life. Everything was organized around the tree of life and the tree of life was the source of life. There he introduced the beasts of the earth, the water and sky. And when the gardener saw that all of this was good, he knew that it was a fitting home for the one whom he had made very good. And so the Lord God put man into the garden, but this only on the condition that he would dress and keep the garden. The divine gardener walked with man in the garden and taught him to tend it well. But man, i.e. man and woman, the first family, dressed and kept the garden badly. Man and woman reaped where they did not sow and sowed the seeds of death so that the Lord God cast them from their home and placed a cherubim with a flaming sword before the garden of paradise to keep the way to the tree of life, lest perhaps they should put forth their hands, eat of its fruit, and live forever. For a long time man was left to plant and to tend his own garden. He toiled greatly by the sweat of his brow, only to reap thistles. All that was left for him to eat were wild herbs of the earth. When he planted the vineyard, he would reap only wild grapes, and often vines withered, and the walls which he built around his garden and the vineyards were broken down, and his crops trampled by wild beasts. Sometimes even God withheld the rain. But for this, man had only himself to blame, for he did not plant and tend his garden the way God had taught him, and he did not remember what the garden of paradise was like, and he did not have access to the tree of life. It's that last sentence that I think is the most, probably the most important for us this evening. I'm going to put this text at the end of my notes uh, for our program this evening because I'd like to come back to it if we have time. 
he did not remember what paradise was like. And in many ways, I think that this statement describes many of our people today in the church. And the result is tragic. The result is tragic. Why? Because to the extent that we do not remember our original home, then we will not know it. We will not see it. We will not appreciate it when God restores it to us. It is the perennial teaching of the church, of Christianity, that the church established by Christ is none other than the restoration of God's original plan. It is nothing less than paradise restored. And for now, I will simply say this, that restore it, he has. And to the extent that we understand, that we recognize, that we remember our original home, we will begin to recognize that home and appreciate that home again. That home that all of us entered on the day of our baptism. St. Athanasius states this, the first fact that you must grasp is this, that the renewal of creation has been accomplished by the self-same word who made it in the beginning. Thus, there is no inconsistency. There is no inconsistency between creation and salvation. For the one Father has employed the same agent for both works, fashioning the salvation of the world through the self-same word who made it at the first. Do you see, my brothers and sisters? The church is not a band-aid on God's original plan. It is not a fix because the devil outdid the creator. Get this thinking out of your mind. I would tell you this, that anyone who seeks to understand the teachings of the church must first and foremost understand this point, that God's plan does not change. He has not been outdone. And what he gives us in the church, what he gives us in the New Testament, what he gives us in the revelation of Jesus Christ is his original plan for Adam and Eve and for all of us. And this means that our topic tonight, the Holy Mysteries and the source and summit of those mysteries, the Holy Eucharist, is God's original plan for the Garden of Eden. It is his original plan that Adam and Eve would receive Holy Communion, would receive the Eucharist in paradise. And it is only by renewing this appreciation and our attention to this that I think we can really understand the Eucharist today. It is, I think, at the root of why most Catholics do not appreciate, do not understand the gift of the Eucharist, and therefore do not come together for the synaxis of the saints, the coming together of God's people on Sunday. It is the reason why so many Catholics approach the Holy Mysteries unworthily, without going to Holy Confession first. It is the primary reason why most Catholics leave the church to join Protestant communions or to leave Christianity altogether because they miss this one singular point. I will not, I cannot stress that enough. Our topic tonight, as you know, 
is the Eucharist in salvation history. What do I mean the Eucharist in salvation history? I thought that the Eucharist was something which Jesus gave us. And I would say, yes, it is, but it is also something more. When we look at the mysteries which are revealed in the New Testament, and we go back to the Old Testament to begin to see how God prepared us for these holy, these holy mysteries, we call this type of study typology. Typology. Okay? And I want to share with you an insight from one of my favorite authors, Cardinal Jean Danielou. You can pick up his book, The Bible and the Liturgy. You can see my covers falling off the book. It's all highlighted because it ranks outside of Scripture as probably my, my second or third favorite text. And he says this, that the realities of the Old Testament are figures of those of the new, figures, types of those of the new, is one of the principles of biblical theology. This science, this study of the similitudes, the similarities between the two testaments is called typology. Okay? This means that we go back to the Old Testament and begin to see their similarities of what is taking place in the New. But I'm telling you, and I want to stop for a moment, because some of you may say, yeah, 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 Father Hezekiah, I've heard this all before. I've been part of the Institute. I see Sandy Greeley there. I've got Cindy Dubois there. You guys have been coming. Pat, you guys have been coming for so many years. I've heard it all before. But let me tell you something. There's something more. There's something very profound and beautiful hidden here. Cardinal Jean Danielou goes on. He says, and here we would do well to remind ourselves of the foundation of this type of study, which is found in the Old Testament itself. At the time of the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, the prophets announced to the people of Israel that in the future God would perform for their benefit deeds analogous to and even greater than those he had performed in the past. So there would be a new deluge, a new flood in which the sinful world would be annihilated and a few men, a remnant, would be preserved to inaugurate a new humanity. There would be a new exodus in which by his power God would set mankind free from its bondage to idols. There would be, and here's the critical point for what I've been speaking about so far, there would be a new paradise into which God would introduce his people he had redeemed. A new paradise in which the tree of life would be planted again, in which we would eat and live forever. He goes on. that This means that the sacraments, the holy mysteries, introduced by Christ and carried on in the life of the church, carry on in our midst the great works of God in the Old Testament and the New. I cannot tell you how important that is to understanding our topic today. The sacraments, the Eucharist, carries on in our midst the great works of God in the Old Testament and in the New. For example, the flood, the passion of Christ, and baptism show the same divine activity. Stop. The same divine activity taking place in the flood of Noah, the crossing of the Red Sea, the passion of Christ, and your baptism. 2,000 years later, the same divine activity is carried out in three different eras of sacred history 
And these phases of God's action are all ordered to the judgment at the end of time, when there will be the fullness of the revelation of these mysteries which are begun. He goes on to say that the fact is that the life of ancient Christianity was centered around worship. And worship was not considered to be a collection of rites meant to sanctify secular life. Let me translate for you. The Eucharist was not meant to be a collection of rites meant to sanctify secular life. This is wrong thinking, according to the patristic mindset. The sacraments were thought of as the essential events of Christian existence and of existence itself as being the prolongation, the drawing out of the great works of God in the Old Testament and in the New. In them is inaugurated a new creation, which introduced the Christian even now into the kingdom of God. The Eucharist is the carrying on, the revelation, the prolongation of what God began in the Old Testament and further revealed in the New and now makes even clearer to us in the church today. Okay, so let me state it clearly. We cannot understand the restoration of God's plan unless we know what we have lost. We cannot understand and appreciate the Eucharist unless we understand and know what we have lost. And so I invite you over the next few minutes together that we have to explore this original plan which God had for us and how that plan is revealed throughout salvation history so that when we encounter it, we recognize it immediately for what it is. And I caution you about this idea of typology. We are not here talking just about similarities. Oh, that's nice. It looks the same. Oh, that's nice. Father Hezekiah thinks it looks okay. And now we're going to go see this story and it's kind of like what Jesus did. We're all happy with that. Not at all. This is a very superficial understanding and an erroneous understanding of typology. When we speak of typology, the events of the Old Testament which lead to the revelation of the New, these are revelations of divine realities. It is the same divine action, which Cardinal Jean Danielou says, which is revealed throughout salvation history. That means that what you encounter in the Eucharist, Pat, what you encounter in the Eucharist, Henry, What you guys encounter, what I encounter, is a participation in the same divine reality that Israel encountered in the Old Testament and Adam and Eve encountered in the Garden of Eden. Now, I'm sure that's going to raise your eyebrows and you're going to have plenty of questions for me at the end of our time together. The second thing I want to caution you about is that it is not arbitrary that I can go back to the Old Testament and see similarities. Four. These similarities were used by Jesus Christ himself. How is it? What do I mean? I want you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 6 very quickly. Notice this. Look at this. Chapter 6, verse, I'm going to start with verse 30. 
So they said to him, to Jesus, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. I'm going to skip over to verse 48. I am the bread of life. Do you see what Jesus is doing? They are asking him questions in terms they understand. We ate and were satisfied. God did this great thing for us in the Old Testament. We saw the divine activity there. Show us the divine activity again. Show us how God is going to intervene now like he did then. And Jesus picks up this image and says, let me tell you right now that the manna they ate in the desert was a beginning, but only a prefigurement of the fullness of that divine activity which stands before you. This is the bread from heaven, verse 50, which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. Do you see that Jesus himself is using this, the, 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 the practice of a typological reading of the Old Testament and applying what took place before to understand and to help his hearers understand what is taking place now? And I want to stop you. Catechists that are in the room, parents, grandparents. I want to tell you to stop for a second. Stop using medieval and Renaissance theological conclusions, which may be very insightful and true. But stop using those theological conclusions to teach the faith and begin using what Jesus himself uses to teach the faith. We have to become once again a people of the scriptures, a people which are, which are drenched in, which are drinking in on a daily basis the scriptures, so that when Jesus begins to talk about manna, we understand what he's talking about because we've memorized the story of the Exodus and then can begin to understand what he's going to do for us today in the Holy Eucharist. Jesus teaches about the holy mystery of the Eucharist by referring not to St. Thomas Aquinas, as good as his insights may be, not to Pope Benedict, as good as his insights may be, but he teaches by referring back to Moses and the entire Old Testament. As catechists, I think we do well to model the teaching of Jesus Christ, which is why at the Institute of Catholic Culture tonight, we are having a study on the Eucharist in salvation history. Okay, I want to challenge you for a moment. Because I think there's a, a, a fundamental error that we, we do. Yes, Father, I want to get into this. I want to be able to understand this way. I want to be able to read it this way. Okay? But to do so requires, I think, one critically important step. I want to ask you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And I'm going to read you that first few verses. I want you to do me a favor while I'm reading it to you. I want you to close your eyes and don't, don't worry, don't worry. I'm not going to play some game on you or something like that. Okay. I want you to imagine what I'm saying, what comes into your mind. Okay. And I'm going to do a share screen, but I want you to go ahead and close your eyes now. Okay. Keep them closed. 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want to ask you while your eyes are closed, what that looks like to you. What does the earth look like? I want you to open your eyes and look at your screen. And I want to ask you if that's what came into your mind. The earth, the globe. And now where are you standing, my brothers and sisters? You're on the moon or you're on a satellite out there in outer space somewhere. Okay, I'm going to stop sharing my screen. If that's the image that came into your mind when I said earth, I think it's pretty obvious we have a problem. Because that is an image that no one in the vast majority of the history of the church, and certainly no one in the Old Testament could have ever imagined. What did they hear when they saw or when they heard these words? What did they see when they heard these words? The Hebrew word here for earth is probably better translated and translated in other places in the Old Testament. Land. The land. Now, who's writing this text? Tradition tells us that Moses is writing this text. When is Moses writing this text? During the time of the Exodus. And what land is important to the people of the time of the Exodus? Leaving Egypt? The land to which they were journeying. The promised land. The land flowing with milk and honey. Do you see, this is an image which they could understand. A land which had everything. Leaving behind them Egypt and journeying to the place where God was going to lead them. My brothers and sisters, when we read the scriptures, we have to get in the scriptures. We cannot stand outside flying in outer space on a satellite. We have to stand in the place where the people that heard these texts for the first time would have stood and begin to appreciate and understand them as they would have understand them, understood them and to see as they would have seen. We need to stop seeing and reading the Bible from the outside and begin to enter into it. We need to get into the picture. We need to peer into paradise and walk around in it. The scripture is an invitation card. But if we don't ever read that invitation card, or we don't ever go to the party that we're being invited to, then my brothers and sisters, we're not going to enjoy the feast. What does it look like? I pulled up a picture off the internet. I'll share it with you. Seeing from the inside of the scriptures is like seeing from the inside of the church versus standing on the outside of a stained glass window. You've done that before. You've stood on the outside of a stained glass window. It looks pretty terrible, doesn't it? But when you walk inside, suddenly everything is full of color. Suddenly your imagination goes wild if the church is properly appointed. This is the key to understanding from a biblical perspective, the perspective of the people. 
This is the key to understanding Genesis. It's going to be the key to understanding all of salvation history. It's going to be the key to understanding the Eucharist in the church today. It cannot be understood from the outside. It can only be revealed and understood from the inside. Imagine what it was like as you're looking at this picture. What was going on in the people's mind when Moses told them he was going to take them to a land that God was going to give them, that he was going to take them to a land which literally flowed with milk and honey in which every aspect of their life would be satisfied. And I invite you to just dream a little bit. I think that's what we have to start doing again in the church is allowing ourselves to dream. First, remember this. God does not change his plan. Throughout all of salvation history, the revelation of Jesus Christ, his plan is the same. And the second thing is that there's nothing in the scriptures placed there by accident. We're going to look at some texts which you've probably glanced over a hundred times. But because we don't get inside the text, we fail to see what is really there. What does paradise look like? What does the Garden of Eden smell like? What does it sound like? Describe it to me. Dream about it. Because if we follow the teachings of the Church of the Fathers and believe that Jesus has restored paradise to us, it's only by realizing what it looked like, what our home looked like, that we will again recognize it when it is revealed to us again. You know, when you go home to your parents' house or when your kids come home to your house, they expect the paintings on the wall to be the same, the pictures on the wall to be the same, right? Where the plates are in the cabinet. And if you change all those things, what are they going to say to you? It just doesn't feel like home anymore. And I think this is the fundamental problem that we face. David Chilton says this, one of the most important discoveries that can be made by one studying the Bible is an understanding of the basic imagery laid down in the early chapters of Genesis. Light and darkness, water and land, sky and clouds, mountains. Think, keep that in your mind. Mountains and gardens, beasts and dragons, gold and jewels. Keep that in your mind. Trees and thorns, cherubs, angels with flaming swords, all of which form a grand and glorious story, a true fairy tale. I think we begin to be lulled to sleep sometimes when we're reading the Bible. We've heard it over and over again. I want to share with you one of my favorite quotes from St. Ephraim the Syrian, Hymns on Paradise, to give you a sense of what it means to stop being lulled to sleep and start seeing the scriptures as the early Christians saw them. Here he describes paradise. Should you wish to climb a tree in the garden, with its lower branches, it will provide steps before your feet, eager to make you recline in its bosom above on the couch of its upper branches. So arranged is the surface of these branches, bent low and cupped, while yet dense with flowers, that they serve as a protective womb for whoever rests there. Who has ever beheld such a banquet in the very bosom of a tree, with the fruit of every savor, ranged for the hand to pluck. Each type of fruit in due sequence approaches, 
each awaiting its turn, fruit to eat and fruit to quench the thirst, to rinse the hands there is dew and leaves to dry them with after, a treasure store which lacks nothing, whose Lord is rich in all things. Now you might think, no, you're going too far. And what does all this have to do with the Eucharist? It has everything to do with the Eucharist because in the midst of that garden, in the midst of that paradise of delight, God planted the tree of life. And that tree of life was meant to do one thing. It was meant to communicate God's life to us. We were meant to eat of it and to live forever. Sound familiar? We were meant to eat in paradise. And through eating, we were meant to commune with God himself. That in that act of eating, God's eternal life through the tree of life would come to dwell within us. And he planted that tree in the middle of the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, turn your Bibles to chapter 3 of Genesis. When Adam and Eve sinned, it was this tree which became the critical turning point for their communion with God, their restoration, or their fall. Take a look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he had been taken. He drove him out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherub. Why were Adam and Eve cast out of the garden of Eden? not simply because they were disobedient, but because they had become disobedient, because they had cut off their communion with the Lord, the Lord himself separated them from the tree of life. St. Ephraim says, wouldn't God have wanted us to eat and then to live forever? And he answers poetically, but very beautifully, but very sadly. He says this, God did this. He cast them forth from the tree of life, lest the life-giving gift that they would receive through the tree of life become misery, and thus bring worse evil upon them than what he had already obtained from the tree of knowledge. From the latter tree they obtained temporal pains, whereas from the former tree they would have made those pains eternal. From the latter they obtained death, which would have cast off from them the bonds of their pains. From the former tree, the tree of life, however, would have caused them to live as if buried alive, leaving them to be tortured eternally, separated from God. They would have lived for hell in, in hell forever. God in his mercy separated us from the tree of life that one day in obedience, he might bring us back. There's a, a hymn that is sung in the Byzantine tradition on the Sunday just before the beginning of Lent, in which we remember the casting out of Adam and Eve, and it says this, Adam sat outside, weeping bitterly, woe to me, what will become of me, a worthless man? I disobeyed one commandment, 
of the Savior and lost every good thing. Holy paradise planted for me by God, grant that I may once again gaze on the flowers of your garden. The Savior said to him, I do not wish the death of my creation. I desire that all should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For he who comes to me, I shall never cast out. St. Ephraim says that from this point forward, the entire aim of God in salvation history, the entire aim of God was to bring Adam and with him all of humanity back into paradise where they could once again eat of the tree of life. God wants his people restored to him in a right relationship, and his plan does not change. I want to step back for just a minute and do a quick exercise with you of salvation history. Um, I know our, our first break is coming up very quickly, but I think we can get through this next section. And that is this last verse introduced into this next session by this last verse that I just read to you. Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden. And it says that in verse 24, on the east of the Garden of Eden, God placed cherub with flaming swords. In which direction were Adam and Eve cast? Hmm? I hope you said east. I hope you said east. Because it is on that eastern side that the angels are placed. Why is that important? Turn your Bibles just, well, my Bible is just one page, to chapter 4, verse 16. After Cain has killed his brother, we see something similar. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Do you see, in the early chapters of Genesis, there is a theme in which God's people, as they sin and fall away from him, are driven further and further in one direction, and that is toward the east. All of salvation history can be understood if you understand this one point. All of salvation history can be understood if you understand the movement of God's people out of communion and back toward communion with him. What do I mean? Every movement of salvation history is a movement of God's people in or out of paradise. And the first person that we see in salvation history that is, in some sense, called back into communion with God is our father in the faith, Abraham. Some of you have done this with me before, but I think it, it, it is good for us to do it again. So I'm going to share my screen. You know from chapter 11 of Genesis, you can turn there, chapter 11 of Genesis, verse 28. God called Abram from the city of Ur. He called Abram to give him a land of inheritance. And Abram journeyed to that land. And his journey ended, the fullness of his journey ended in the city of of Jerusalem. If exile from God and from paradise in the Garden of Eden is in the direction of the east, and return then would be in the direction of the west. If we take Ur of Chaldees as our point of exile, 
and draw a line directly west. What city do we hit but Jerusalem? Why is it that exile from paradise is toward the east? Because if it were to the west, they would fall into the Mediterranean Sea. For the people of God of the Old Testament, they believed that Jerusalem was the original location of the Garden of Eden. And all of salvation history can be understood from this perspective. Adam and Eve were cast out. Abram is called back in from Ur of the Chaldees. The 12 brothers of Israel, the 12 sons of Israel, the brothers of Joseph, are cast out because of their sin. They journey to Egypt or enslaved there. Moses and Joshua will lead them back into the promised land and to Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, when the people become disobedient during the Babylonian exile, they'll be again cast out to Babylon. And then 70 years later, they will return back. It is to that holy city that the incarnate word will go to be crucified and to rise from the dead. Jerusalem is the center of salvation history, and it is, according to biblical theology, it is the location of the Garden of Eden. All of salvation history is simply a going out or returning in to paradise. And when they come back in, and this is the critic, I would say, I keep saying that this is critically important tonight. These are all critically important. But this one in particular regarding salvation history and the Eucharist, when God's people return back into that place, when they return to communion with God, God doesn't change his plan. And therefore, we will again see what I would call sparks of paradise. Images of paradise, types of paradise. When God's people return to communion with him, paradise will again be restored. And therefore, God will dwell there. Man will once again be fruitful and multiply. There will be a mountain, the mountain of Jerusalem. The people will once again eat of the fruit of the land. And angels will guard the way in. Cardinal Jean Danielou says, there can be no serious theology of the incarnation of redemption. And I will add, there can be no serious theology of the Eucharist without referring to chapter 3 of Genesis, without referring to chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis. There can be no serious study of the Eucharist without a serious study of the Garden of Eden and how that garden is revealed throughout salvation history. When Abraham journeys back into that place, turn your Bibles to chapter 13, verse 10. When he finds himself once again in that location, which the people of the Old Testament believed was the original location of paradise, let's look at how he describes it. Chapter 13, verse 10. Verse 10, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. And in the center of that well watered garden is the mountain of Jerusalem. And it is to that mountain known by another name, Mount Moriah. It is to that mountain that Abram will go to offer up his son in sacrifice. It is on that spot in the middle of that holy city that Abraham would take his son 
and bind him to offer him to the Lord. That story is given to us in Genesis chapter 22. You know the story well. He takes his son up the mountain, and there he is to sacrifice his only son. St. Ephraim says this, and this is where I believe we learn, we do well to learn from the insights of the fathers, to begin to dream again what it must have been like. He says this, In two things, then, was Abraham victorious, that he killed his son, although he did not kill him, and that he believed that after Isaac died, he would be raised up again and would go back down with him. For Abram, Abraham was firmly convinced that he who said to him, through Isaac shall your descendants be named, was not lying. Then Abraham saw a ram in the tree and took it and offered it upon the altar in place of his son. The question that Isaac had asked about the lamb attests to the fact that there had been no ram there. The wood that was on Isaac's shoulders proves that there had been no tree there. The mountain in this moment spit out the tree, and the tree spit out the ram like a flower. So that in the ram that hung in the tree and had become the sacrifice in the place of Abraham's son, there might be depicted the day of him who was to hang upon the wood like a ram and was to taste death for the sake of the whole world. And there, hanging upon that tree, was the new fruit of paradise. My brothers and sisters, I hope this gives you a taste at least of what we are going to be doing in the next 40 minutes. As we fly through salvation history, we need to talk about the manna in the desert. We need to talk about the fruit in the promised land. And we need to turn to the New Testament to see what Jesus Christ gives us in the mystery of the Holy Eucharist. I want to focus our, net, our attention now on the time of the Exodus because it's really that time period which, uh, which Jesus uses in John chapter 6, doesn't he? He talks about manna in terms of the Eucharist or compares the two. Um, so really I think we do well to focus our attention there. Just as the waters were divided at creation, so now God's people walk through the Red Sea. The waters part and they begin their journey back toward paradise. It is during this time in the desert that we begin to see as they're journeying back toward the garden and drawing closer and closer to it, that we begin to see, as I call them, sparks of paradise, lights of paradise, little things which begin to occur, which I think we do well to pay attention to. During this time of travel, in which this restoration begins, it happens because God begins to dwell in their midst. And I can't stress that point enough. It is the dwelling of God which reveals paradise on earth. There's a reason for that that we can learn from this time period in the desert. Ultimately, what takes place in the time of the desert is a prefigurement of what is going to take place when they find their permanent home. Okay, What takes place in the desert, the building of the tent, the meeting place of God, 
is for travel. But what is for travel will find permanence when they finally settle in Jerusalem and build the temple. The manna itself, which feeds the people in the desert, is a prefigurement of what they are going to receive when they eat of the fruit of the land to which they are journeying. And I remind you again that that land perceived by them as to be the beginning of the restoration of paradise, a land which flows with milk and honey. I encourage you to turn to Exodus chapter 25. Chapter 25, we're going to look at verse 8. Let them, this is an instruction to Moses during the time of the Exodus, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst according to all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. So look, Moses is up on the mountain. And God reveals something to him. He says, look at this pattern which I'm showing you, and now go and build it. There's something very important that we can learn about this, because that tent, which was for travel in the desert, I said, finds its fullness and permanence in the temple in Jerusalem. It is what the tent pointed toward. This is important to remember because it's through looking at the fullness of that revelation as it is revealed in Jerusalem that we can begin to understand the, what that pattern looked like that Moses saw. Turn your Bibles to chapter 26, verse 30, in which we hear something very similar. And you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for which it has been shown you on the mountain. So look, Moses up on Mount Sinai. He sees God face to face, and suddenly he sees something in which he's supposed to go down and establish on the land. Now, what does it look like that he sees? We're told in Hebrews, the epistle of Hebrews. Turn your Bibles. If you go all the way to the end of your Bible and then start working backwards, it's probably your easiest way to find the epistle to the Hebrews. Hebrews. Chapter 8, we're going to look at verse 5. The they there, the first word you see, they is speaking of the Levitical priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood. They serve a copy in the temple in shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern which is shown to you on the mountain. Do you see this, my brothers and sisters? We're revealed, what is revealed to us in the New Testament in Hebrews is the nature of what Moses sees on the mountain of Sinai. Why is this important? Because by looking at the temple in Jerusalem, the fulfillment of the tent of the desert, we can begin to see what the heavenly sanctuary looks like. You want to know what heavenly paradise looks like? Look at the instruction of the building of the temple in Jerusalem. Does that make sense to you? Let's look at 1 Kings. Turn your Bibles back to the Old Testament. We're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 6. Let's start with the question of how long it took Solomon to build the temple. Look at chapter 6. It's 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38, the last sentence of verse 38. How long was it? How long did it take him to build the temple in Jerusalem? Seven years. Like the seven days of creation 
in Genesis. You say, now, oh, I don't know about that, Father. Well, let's take a look at what it looks like. Look at chapter 6, verse 23. In the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim. Where else do we see two cherubim? Guarding the way into paradise. And now those two cherubim are placed at the gate, at the entranceway of the Holy of Holies. Look at verse 29. He carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures of cherubim, of palm trees and open flowers. Verse 32. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. Turn to chapter 7. In the middle of the temple, on the posts, the, the, the pillars in the temple, okay, they're holding up the ceiling. What does he tell them to do? Verse 18 of chapter 7. He made pomegranates in two rows round about the one network to cover the capital that was upon the top of the pillar. Let me ask you a question. What does it look like to have a wood pillar with pomegranate fruit hanging off of it? It looks like a fruit tree, doesn't it? The entire Holy of Holies, the temple itself, was a golden garden. The place where paradise was to be restored. St. Ephraim says, the symbol of paradise was depicted by Moses who made the sanctuary. My brothers and sisters, we can bring these images together now. What did the tent look like in the desert? What did the temple look like in Jerusalem? What did the heavenly sanctuary look like? The pattern which Moses was shown? Nothing less than the Garden of Eden itself. And into that garden, into that golden garden, in Jerusalem, in the selfsame place in which guard, the Garden of Eden was planted in the beginning, he put man and gave him, him instruction to do the work of God. I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but I want to encourage you to begin to dream and to wonder what it was like for the priest to enter the Holy of Holies once a year and there commune with God himself. My brother said in a text that he wrote that I was looking up in preparation for our time together tonight. He said, upon crossing the waters of the Red Sea and entering the desert, Israel had begun their pilgrimage to the promised land. Along their way, God sustained them with manna, a foretaste of the fruits of the garden, which they would someday see. I'm going to complete that quote in a few minutes. The manna was a foretaste of the fruit of the land which they would someday see. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 16. It's one of those little details that we probably read over a hundred times and never really thought too much about it. Exodus 16, verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it, was like wafers made with honey. My brothers and sisters, they are journeying toward a land which flows with milk and honey. And now they are eating the bread which comes down from heaven, and it tastes like the fruit of the land which they are journeying to. Let me point out one other thing for you in Numbers chapter, chapter 11, verse 7. Chapter 11, verse 7. Now the manna 
was like coriander seed. We heard that before. And its appearance like that of bdellium. Why is that important, bdellium? Turn your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 2. Speaking of the rivers which flowed out of paradise. Chapter 2, verse 10. Verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Now let me ask you a question. When gold ends up in a foreign land, or gold ends up in a land, where, how does it get to that land? Most of the time, through the water. Huh? The fathers of the church read this text. I'm going to tell you what they said. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon. It is the one which flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium, Bdellium, and onyx stone are there. Bdellium was found in the lands to which the waters of paradise flowed, which made the fathers of the church, St. Ephraim in particular, say, look, the Garden of Eden must have been covered, the whole ground must have been covered in jewels, so that through the rivers, the river of life, these jewels flowed out into the lands around them. And lo and behold, when God begins to dwell with his people, and bread is given again from heaven for the people to eat and sustain their life, what is described but the very jewels which are found on the floor of paradise itself, that manna is described as bdellium. Let me go further. In Numbers chapter 13, the people of God arrive at the edge of the promised land. Numbers chapter 13. And the spies are sent out to investigate the land. This land, by the way, which has the fruit which the manna pointed to. That fruit, which is a prefigurement of the Eucharist, because Jesus himself says that the manna is a prefigurement of the Eucharist. And if the manna is a prefigurement of the fruit of paradise or the fruit of the land of the promised land, then that fruit is also a type of the Eucharist. Take a look at this. Chapter 13, verse 20. Go find out whether the land is rich or poor, whether there is wood or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time of the season of the first ripe grapes, verse 23, verse 23. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole between the two of them. Have you ever seen a cluster of grapes, a single cluster of grapes that was so big that two men had to carry it on a pole and look at the other fruit that they got. Pomegranates hanging off the temple in Jerusalem. Pomegranates and grapes and figs. The fig tree is the only tree we know for certain was in the Garden of Eden. Whereas that tree that they plucked the leaves from to cover themselves. God's people are journeying in to paradise itself. Turn your Bibles with me to, to Joshua chapter 5. When after 40 years in the desert, after 40 years of wandering, they finally enter that land. Let's take a look at chapter 5, verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 10 of Joshua. 
While the people of Israel were encamped in Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 40, 14th day of the month at evening on the plains of Jericho. And on the morrow after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain, and the manna ceased on the morrow. There it is. The manna is a prefigurement of the fruit of the promised land. For when they partook of the fruit of the promised land, the manna ceased. Verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood before him with a drawn sword in his hand. Cherubs with flaming swords. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord bid his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, put off your shoes from your feet for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. When they enter into that land, I'll give you one more text that we have to look at in first Samuel. When they enter into that land, there they do partake of that land which flows with milk and honey. And in 1 Samuel chapter 14, Jonathan, the son of Saul, the son of King Saul, is walking through the forest of that land which flows with milk and honey, that land which they believed to be paradise itself, to which God was bringing them back to restore it. Let's look at chapter 14, verse 24. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be a man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food, and all of the people came into the forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put forth the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Now, don't just read over that text. You can't read over the fact that the manna looks at like bedellium and tastes like honey. We cannot read over a text which says that he ate of the honey of that land and his eyes were opened and became shining bright. To have your eyes opened to scripture is to come to know all things, to have God himself revealed to you. That land which they believed was the original location of paradise was flowing with a mystical honey and grew fruit the size of watermelons. Grapes, I should say, the size of watermelons. And in the midst of that land, the mountain of Jerusalem. And in the middle of Jerusalem, the location chosen by Solomon to build the temple, which would become the dwelling place of God. That temple which was a golden garden covered in carvings of fruit and flowers. I want to share with you a, uh, an intertestamental Jewish text, a Jewish midrash, which talks about that location upon which 
Solomon built his temple. Today you know that there is a famous building there built by the Muslims called the Dome of the Rock. The reason it's called the Dome of the Rock is because it sits on top of a massive rock. That massive rock is a sacred rock, a rock sacred to the Old Testament people. Because upon that rock, all of the great events of salvation history took place. And it was upon that rock that Solomon built the temple. Here's what the text says. It is upon this rock that the waters first parted at creation to bring forth the land. It is upon this rock that man was first created in the garden. It is upon this rock that Isaac was to be sacrificed. It is upon this rock that Solomon built the temple. It is upon this rock that the prayers and sacrifices go to heaven. And it is this rock which is the capstone to the gates of Hades. What did the Holy One, blessed be he, do like a man setting in place a central pole of a tent? He raised his right foot and drove the stone down into the very bottom of the deeps and made it the pillar of the earth. Therefore, it is called the spindle stone, for it is the very navel of the earth from which the whole earth is stretched out. And upon this stone is the house of the Lord. When the Jewish high priest entered the Holy of Holies once a year, he was commanded by God, and you can write this down, we're not going to look at it, in Numbers chapter 18, verses 5 through 7, oftentimes translated as a command to till, or sorry, to, to, to attend and to serve in the holy place. When the, holy, when the high priest entered that holy place once a year, he was given the command in Hebrew to do two things, to avad and shamar. The very two words commanded to Adam and Eve in the garden, to till and to keep it. And there the high priest stood to till and keep the garden of the Lord once again. The priest in the temple is Adam doing his duty. He is doing what Adam was supposed to do, standing in the golden garden. He did what Adam was to, to do before the fall. N.T. Wright says that the high priest ruling over Israel is like Adam ruling over all creation. Even his vestments were, according to one version of the tradition, the self-same garments that the creator had made for Adam. And here he speaks of the vesture before the fall. Because the fathers say Adam was not so much naked as clothed in the grace of God. David Chilton, who I quoted to you earlier, says this, The high priest was a living symbol of man fully restored to fellowship with God in the garden. His forehead was covered with a gold plate on which was engraved the phrase, Holy to the Lord, as a symbol of the removal of the curse of Adam's brow. His breastplate was covered with gold and precious stones, and the hem of his robe was ringed with pomegranates and golden bells. As another symbol of the freedom from the curse, the robe was made out of linen. For while they were ministering, the priests were forbidden to wear any wool at all. They shall be clothed with linen garments, and wool shall not be on them while they are ministering. They shall not gird themselves with anything that makes them sweat. Because sweat was a sign 
and a part of the curse, a sign of the fall and part of the curse. N.T. Wright says that the high priest ruling over Israel was like Adam ruling over all creation. I want to give you two final quotes because you might be saying to yourself, yeah, but what does all that have to do with the Eucharist? And I'll tell you it has everything to do with the Eucharist because the Eucharist is the fulfillment of what took place once a year in that holy place when the Lord God spoke to the high priest and began to restore their paradise itself. St. Ephraim says this, that accompanied by the knowledge which was hidden in the ephod that the priest wore, the priest entered the sanctuary, a type of paradise, and tasted of the tree through the symbol of the revelation given to him. In other words, when the high priest entered the holy place, he communed with God himself. Isaac of Nineveh says this, the same applied to the plate on the top of the ark from which the priest would learn from God whatever was necessary by revelation once a year. When the high priest entered at the solemn moment of prayer, while all the tribes of Israel were gathered and standing in awe and trembling in the outer court in prayer, the high priest entered the inner sanctuary and while he lay prostrate on his feet, the utterances of God were audible. He heard God speak to him from within the plate, which was over the ark, by means of an awesome and ineffable revelation. How fearful was that mystery which was carried out on that occasion. Let us turn now to the New Testament and focus our attention on the revelation of Jesus Christ. I ask you to turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I've told you this before, I'll say it again. When you open up the beginning of the Gospel of John, he puts up a stop sign for us, doesn't he? He says, look, you cannot go any further in understanding this text unless you understand what it was like in the beginning. For it was in the beginning that God planted paradise, and now Jesus has come again. The word of God speaks again, and paradise is restored. The dwelling of God on earth is restored. The temple is restored, not built out of dead stones, but out of flesh, because now the fall is over and God once again breathes his life into us. What was carved on the tablets of the law in the Old Testament is now going to be carved on the flesh of our hearts. What was built out of stone in the Old Testament, what was built out of stone in the Old Testament is now going to be built out of the flesh of the sons of God. In fact, it is Jesus who tells us in the Gospel of John, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. In chapter 1, verse 12, in chapter 1, verse 12, to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave power to become children of God those who partake of the divine nature, those who partake of the divine nature, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, 
nor of the will of man, but of God. To understand how it is that we are born again, we simply need to see this take place in the gospel. We need Jesus to give us one further insight, and that is given to us in chapter 3 of John. Chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. In our holy baptism, God parts the waters Again, and once again, man comes forth from those waters to stand on dry ground and to receive the gift which God had planned for him from the beginning. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And this is the critical text that I would, I want you to maybe even go home and study this text, meditate it on, it, on your own. But we can go through it now. Chapter 10, verse 1. I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What? Baptism in the Old Testament? Baptized into Moses? Yes. The same divine activity being revealed throughout salvation history now comes to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ in the church. And now look at what he says. And all ate of the same supernatural food. All ate of the same supernatural drink. For they drank from the supernatural rock, which is Christ. Now put on your spiritual seatbelt, my brothers and sisters. Israel in the Old Testament received the gift of Jesus Christ when they journeyed through the desert. Sparks of paradise revealed throughout salvation history because God does not change. God does not change. The Eucharist is the fulfillment. The Eucharist is God's original plan. Unless you think I take it too far, in the same chapter, St. Paul is giving this teaching to contextualize what? Look at verse 14. Verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, shun the worship of idols. I speak to you as a sensible man. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Verse 21, you cannot drink of the cup of Christ and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. I go back to those first verses of chapter 10. Verse 3. And all ate the same supernatural food and all drank the same supernatural drink. 
for they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. It was God who fed them. It was God who preserved them. It was God who gave them drink. It was God who was fulfilling in their life his original plan for Adam and Eve. And it was God who was born of the Virgin Mary, who journeyed to that same city to which they journeyed to. It was God who journeyed to that same rock which they journeyed to. It was God who there willingly went to the tree of the cross. And hanging upon that tree of the cross, he says to each one of us today, eat and you will live forever. Repeating his words of Genesis chapter 3 verse 24 for the first time in salvation history. Eat and you will live forever. St. Ephraim says this, greatly saddened was the tree of life when it beheld Adam stolen away from it. It sank down into the virgin ground and was hidden, only to burst forth and reappear on Golgotha. I'll finish that quote that I gave you from my brother earlier. Upon crossing the waters of the Red Sea and entering into the desert, Israel had begun their pilgrimage to the Promised Land. Along their way, God sustained them with manna, a foretaste of the fruits of the garden, which they would someday see. We Christians who have passed through the waters of baptism have embarked upon the new pilgrimage of the new exodus. And like Israel of old being accompanied by God, the new Israel is sustained with the new manna as a foretaste of the future feast of the garden that awaits our bodily return. Father James Groening says this, For the beginning of his passion, Jesus chose a wonderfully beautiful garden. How significant that choice was. In a garden, the first Adam had committed the first sin, the sin of disobedience. Therefore, it was in a garden that the second Adam should say to his father, not what I will, but what thou wilt. In a garden, Adam, by an abuse of liberty, had plunged the entire human race into the most shameful captivity. In a garden, therefore, by the bonds of Christ, our fetters were to be broken. In a garden, God had pronounced the death penalty upon Adam. Hence, in a garden, Christ would take upon himself the judgment and the curse. In a garden, the human race was lost, and usually an object is sought where it was lost. St. Ephraim says, Our Lord subdued his might, and they seized him, so that his living death might give life to Adam. He gave his hands to be pierced by nails in place of that hand that had plucked the fruit. He was struck on the cheek in the judgment hall in return for that mouth that had eaten without command in the garden. Because Adam had let his slip foot and walk where he should not, they pierced his feet. Our Lord was stripped naked so that he might be clothed in modesty. With gall and vinegar he made sweet that bitter venom that the serpent had poured into mankind. And it was in a garden that Jesus on the third day rose from the dead. And it was in a garden that Mary Magdalene, who remained outside his tomb, weeping, saw him for the first time. And there, the Gospel of John tells us that she mistook him for a gardener. It was not by accident, my brothers and sisters, that Jesus appeared to be the one 
restored in the place of the one who had fallen and refused to till and to keep. St. Ephraim tells us that Christ's tomb and the garden are symbols of Eden, where Adam died a hidden death, for he had fled and hidden himself among the trees as though he had entered a tomb and been covered over. The living one once entombed has now arisen in the garden and raised up that Adam that had fallen in the garden. From the tomb does Christ bring Adam in glory into the marriage feast of the garden of paradise. Father Dom Prosper Garanger said that on that first Easter morning, Magdalene, like a morning star, announced the rising of the Son of Justice, who was never more to set. Woman, said Jesus to her, why weepest thou? Thou art not mistaken, he seemed to say. It is indeed the divine gardener speaking to you, the same that planted Eden in the beginning, but now dry thy tears in this new garden whose center is an empty tomb. Paradise is restored. The angels no longer guard the entrance. Here is the tree of life, which has borne fruit these three days past. And if thou, O woman, were eager of old to reach forth and seize it and taste it. Sorry, I misread that. This fruit you, a woman, were eager as of old to seize and taste belongs to thee now by right, for thou art no longer Eve, but Mary. If thou art forbidden not to touch it yet, it is because as thou wouldst not heretofore taste the fruit of death thyself alone, thou mayest not now enjoy the fruit of life till thou bringest back him that was first lost through thee, go and get the apostles. My brothers and sisters, Jesus has come to do nothing less than give us back the Garden of Eden. And in the midst of that garden is planted the tree of life. Let us conclude by turning to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven, uh, that pattern which Moses saw on Mount Sinai. And a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I'm going to skip to verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And in the Spirit he carried me away to the great high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them the twelve names of the twelve apostles. Look at verse 19. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every jewel, huh? the floor of paradise. 
The first was jasper, the second sapphire, and so forth, covering the floor of paradise. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, the same which flowed in Eden, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There shall no more be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall worship him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their forehead. And the night shall be no more. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Amen. The church which Christ established is the revelation of God's original plan in which the waters of creation part and man is reborn, in which we walk in the garden once again in the cool of the day, in which God, through holy chrismation, holy confirmation, breathes his life into us once again. That garden in which Adam and Eve walked and had access to the tree of life, we now enter in again, for we call Jesus our Savior. And we call him that because he gives us back that which we lost, namely access to the tree of life, from which we can eat and live forever. When we behold the Eucharist in the church, we don't see a band-aid invented by a medieval church. We see God's original plan in which he nourishes us and feeds us. For our exodus out of slavery to this world and our entrance into paradise, which is to come. In the church, God's kingdom is restored. In the church, the Garden of Eden is restored. In the church, the tree of life is restored. In the church, we see Jesus who hangs upon the cross and says, Come, eat, and you will live forever. I'll finish with a quotation from St. Gregory of Nyssa. You banished us from paradise and you recalled us. You stripped off the fig leaves, an unseemly covering, and put upon us a costly garment. No longer shall Adam be confounded when you call, nor hide himself, convicted by his conscience, cowering in the thicket of paradise. Nor shall the flaming sword encircle paradise around and make the entrance inaccessible to those who draw near. But all is turned to joy for us who are heirs of sin. Paradise, yes, heaven itself may be trodden again by man. Thank you all for your attention. May God bless you. Um, all right, question and answer. You guys got questions. I probably don't have answers, but I'll see what happens. Any questions you might have? I was wondering if you could talk about the role of food, like how many times you can highlight the word food or anything like that in Genesis 3 and John 6. Food? Food, food or eat or flesh. Well, I'll tell you what, this is a great question, but it's more of an exercise than it is a question. So uh, I'm going to encourage you to go back into your Bible, okay? Uh, it's a great thing to do because eating, first of all, I'm going to expand your question a little bit. Eating, consuming, right, is a matter of bringing the things outside of us within us. 
Similarly, knowledge, as I've said before, is the union of the knower and the known. It is the taking the things which are outside of this of us and making them one with us. And how do we do that? Through our senses, through eating, through seeing, and so forth. I would encourage you to go into your Bible in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 and highlight all of these aspects. Connect all of the seeing that is there, all of the eating that is there. Okay, this is exactly what I did in my Bible. Okay, you'll see all these lines and highlights because I'm not telling you, oh, look at my Bible because I'm so I read the Bible, I'm so pious. No, because I want to do exactly what you what you did is I start to make connections within the text, and there's so many. She saw that the food was good to eat. Right? There's all these connections, Bob. I encourage you to go in there with your highlighter and make those connections for yourself. Okay. Father, I've got a question for you. All through salvation history, you're talking about manna, bread, fruit of the earth. Then Christ comes, though he describes himself as the bread of life, he tells us it's his flesh and his blood. Just a, a, a complete movement from what you know some would think of as, as bread over to flesh. So can you explain that connection? Remember that with the incarnation, our encounter with the Lord changes, right? Now, the one who breathed into Adam and Eve walks with us, talks with us, and holds our hand, okay? He is flesh. The Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life was meant to communicate what he is. And now what he is, eternal life, has become incarnate. So receiving eternal life fundamentally, I, I hate to use the word changes. I don't like that because we're disconnected. Suddenly there's something new and different. In some sense there is. There's a fullness or a further revelation. But, but the, the reality which is communicated through the tree of life now is incarnate. So the fact that he gives us his flesh and blood is because of the incarnation. Do you see? It becomes the vehicle by which he communicates with us. But there's something more. And that is that all of creation, bread, as I just said, bread, water, wine. There's a reason why Jesus goes. The first thing he does is goes to the Jordan River, right? Because he's going to take the fundamental elements of this world and divinize them. So what he is and what we are, the, the things of this world, suddenly are brought together. The incarnation is not for God. The incarnation is for us. God became man so that, see the point is not for God. God became man so that man might become God. And with him, all of the created order divinized. All of those things which we till and keep, which is why I said it's not an accident that a priest takes bread on the altar and divinizes it. It's not an accident because these are the fundamental elements of this world, water and, 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 and bread and wine and oil and so forth. These are the fundamental elements of this world, which in the beginning were charged with God's life so that when we encountered creation, we would encounter God himself. And he has become one of those elements. He has become one of us. 
And so now we receive him just as we would have received him in paradise. But now the reality that we would have received in paradise has become incarnate for the purpose of the divinization of bread and wine and water and oil and so forth. There is a question that uh, I want to answer here about uh, the new heavens and the new earth. And by the way, yes, of course, the showbread is a type of the Eucharist. In fact, I believe, Daniel, in your treatment of the Eucharist that I just got in the mail, do you talk about the showbread? Uh, I, I get it, but uh, the showbread is uh, showbread's a bad translation. It's, it's really lachem uh, hapanim, which is, can be translated as the bread of presence, or literally the bread of face. Right? And so it's the bread of the presence of God, but it's the Eucharist. It's the bread of the presence of God. It's God himself, right? And it's the sacrifice in the temple. And so in the new temple, which is the church, uh, the Eucharist is this new bread of presence. Absolutely. And I want to just re relate it to that. Uh, don't ever be afraid as a Catholic to dream. So when you see honey that makes an eye, the eyes of a man bright, put on the, the brakes. Stop. Okay, this is the revelation of God, and you're encountering, you're touching paradise itself, which brings us to the next question. What do we believe as Catholics about the new heavens and the new earth? And probably this question is being asked because of the Jehovah's Witnesses, okay? Oh, you can listen to our talk on the Jehovah's Witnesses under um, Kingdom of the Cults, Kingdom of the Cults. Specifically, the new earth part, thinking in connection to your theme of Garden and Eden of Eden and a return to the garden was literally on earth in is heaven and the new earth the same one place or different this is really important really important and it's something that I think most Catholics today are completely lost on probably a disservice of uh, Renaissance humanism gone wild okay what do we think of when we think of heaven we got the big fat cherub up there with the violin, okay? And he's hanging around. And then what do we do when we go to heaven? Hmm? Let me ask you. What are you going to do when you go to heaven? What's your concept? I mean, what are you, we're going to float around in outer space, kind of like in no man's land, right? We're just going to kind of float there. And we're just, we're just going just gonna to be. Well, guess what? That is a rejection of how God made us. It's a rejection of the incarnation. It's a rejection of the good of this earth. It's a heresy which denies the goodness of the body. We confess in the creed that we will rise from the dead bodily. That means you and I are going to have a body, and bodies are made for something. Bodies have eyes to see and ears to hear. We have the senses to touch, taste, feel okay we were made to walk and my brothers and sisters we're gonna walk i look forward to seeing you in paradise what are we reading the book of revelation there's a new heavens and a new earth and the holy city jerusalem the dwelling place of god came out of heaven and united with the earth so that the two are no longer separated, but one. You want to talk, Jerry, about the divinization of bread, the filling up of the things of the showbread, the filling up of the things of this world. 
this was God's original plan to dwell with us. Not to be separated. Not that we would be here and he would be there. Look at the book of Revelation. He dwells with us just as much and more as he dwells within the church. I look forward to the day in which I can hold my mother's hand again and tell her that I love her. I miss her a lot. I miss her a lot. I look forward to the day when I can see her again and and hug her because I didn't get a chance to say I love you before she died. God's going to give us that. And it's only we who believe in the resurrection of Christ and are Catholics, members of the apostolic churches, that believe in the divinization of creation. The Protestants, Luther rejected the possibility of the divinization of creation. And when he rejected it, he rejected God's original plan. Okay? All right, that's enough of that. Any other questions? We're good? Let's conclude in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. O Lord Jesus Christ, we pray, send down your Holy Spirit upon us who are gathered together. You who promise that where two or three are gathered in your name, you would be here among us. Be present now and grant what we ask so long as it is according to our salvation and according to your will. For you are blessed both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.